You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. As we discussed this morning in our first service, our children are not the future of the church. Our children, we firmly believe, are our church now. They're just shorter. But we get to intentionally, deliberately engage with discipleship efforts, helping them to grow in their obedience of faith. We're going to find out this morning in the book of Romans chapter 1 that that is Paul's entire purpose for him writing the book of Romans, that the people, the believers in Rome, immediately, and then by extension, us thousands of years later, that we would all continue to grow in our obedience of faith. We get to be a part of what's happening in the lives of these people. And it's not babysitting. It's not child care, as I hear from time to time. It is giving these kids the gospel in every conceivable context and in every conceivable manner so that they will ever increasingly fall in love with the gospel. We say it all the time here at Bethel. The gospel is the good news, the awesome announcement, the great story of what God has done. It's a historical event in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. That's the gospel. And it's not so much a thing as it is a person. All of the hope, all of the promise, all of the provision in the Old Testament are bound up in the person of Jesus Christ. And so someone who continues to grow in their understanding and their appreciation of the gospel will begin to themselves personally feel the truth and the impact and the influence of that great old church hymn about the church. You know the one I'm talking about. It goes like this. <clears throat> I love to go to church. I love to go to church. I love to go to church. Everyone, just me? I love to go to I love that song. It's true. I love to go to church. I didn't always used to love to go to church. I'm going to level with you. But when I began to understand that the church is the place where people get the gospel and give the gospel, and that that is the centrality of life as God has planned for me, I love to go to church. I get it. Sometimes church can be a bit of a, a, bit of a beat down. Sometimes it can feel like a hassle, and you feel like, well, I, I'm going to be the uh, charter member of Bedside Baptist this morning, or I'm going to go to Deer Stand Presbyterian this morning. But listen, the church matters massively. It's not always easy. I can tell you every Sunday afternoon, I'm going, ah, Sunday's coming, ah, Sunday's coming, and yet I can't wait. I love to go to church because the church, this body of Christ, this people of God, this fellowship of the Spirit is where the gospel is gotten and where it is given. And so let me say what I believe is the theme of our text this morning is our big idea for the sermon this morning. It goes like this. The church is God's plan for your life. I don't know all of you. I don't know all of you that well, but I can tell you with certainty and confidence that if you are in this room hearing this this morning, this is true, and it will never not be true of you that the church is God's plan for your life. There will never be a time in your life when this is not true. So we're going to go to the book of Romans chapter 1. And we're going to see what God has for us. I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 8 to 15, and then we'll try to unpack this a bit. Romans chapter 1, we just began our series last Sunday. We'll continue through until we're finished or until, even better, Jesus just comes back. But for now, we're in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. Paul says, 
First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is God's word. Now I want to give you a very quick on-ramp and a recap of how we got to this place. What's going on with the book of Romans? I want to remind you that I don't talk too fast, you listen too slowly. So that's on you. I'm going to invite you to ratchet up your listener because i got a lot of things on my mind, people. All right, There's a lot going on in this passage, and I really want to be able to convey all of it. So here's the deal. The book of Romans, written by the Apostle Paul in the year A.D. 57. Acts chapter 20 tells us that Paul is on his third missionary journey, sitting in the city of Corinth during what's called his painful visit. He's in Corinth dealing with this church that he planted with his apostolic authority, but he's hearing reports about this church or these churches in Rome. And so he writes this letter to them from Corinth around the year A.D. 57. He's never been there. He didn't plant these churches. These churches have no apostolic foundation. And so Paul, probably getting reports from Priscilla and Aquila, writes this great grand 16 chapter letter the greatest letter that's ever been written and so again just as a quick outline uh, a summary how to break down the chunks of the book of romans chapters one through three are the doctrine of condemnation i.e everybody's jacked up whether you're jew or gentile there is not one who is righteous no not one none seek after god the doctrine of condemnation all human condemnation is just because there's not a single one that is good but chapters 4 through 5 are the doctrine of justification. God finds the human race guilty, but declares those who receive the gospel righteous. It's a scandal of grace. He finds them guilty. He declares them righteous. Well, then what are you going to do? You've got these people who are far from God, who have now been declared righteous. Ah, chapters 6, 7, and 8, the doctrine of sanctification and glorification. How these people are transformed, ever increasingly conformed to the image of the Son of God himself. Well, then you have chapters 9, 10, and 11, which are the doctrine of vindication. God's sovereignty is in question, and so Paul says, oh, that Israel question that you have? Let me explain it. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, the vindication of God's sovereignty, which finally gets us to chapters 12 through 15, that is application. So what? And now what? In view of God's mercy, what do we do? Chapter 16 is the benediction, the final sign-off. We're going to say this, hopefully, every single week we preach the book of Romans. The overarching theme of the book of Romans goes like this. The righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the whole thrust of the book of Romans. The righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. Or, as I said last week, it is Paul doing exposition on Romans 15.6. I'm sorry, Genesis 15.6, where it says, Abraham believed God, and God credited that to him as righteousness. Paul says, whoa, that's the gospel. And he writes 16 chapters explaining what that means way back in Genesis 15. So then, back to Romans chapter 1. 
Paul has spent seven verses giving his Roman readership the gospel of God, the good news, that it's a person, it's not a thing. It is who Jesus is and what he has done. The gospel of God, that it was a man who was God, became flesh, and that person lived a perfect sinless life, and he died paying the wages of sin, which is death, and he is alive again. So he is a death-proof king. He's pre-existing, and then he incarnated. He is God. He is man. And it was planned beforehand. This was not some accidental reaction to the collapse of Judaism or anything like that or the fall of the temple. No, this was God's plan all along that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. This is the gospel of God. So Paul establishes that as he starts his letter to the Romans, and now he's going to get very, very personal with them. So let's walk through, let's unpack this. Again, back to chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says, first, now I sort of love this, because (laughs) Paul starts his paragraph with first as if there's going to be a second and a third, and there never will be. He never gets around to number, you can read all 16 chapters, he's never going to get to points two or anything after that. So I don't think he's starting a list. I think what he's doing here is he's addressing that which is of primary importance to him. He wants them to understand that he really cares about these people in Rome. See, here's the deal. Paul had never been there. And apparently, there are reports swirling, there are accusations being made that Paul, well, he's a Jewish guy, he's a Pharisee, but now he's a Christian, but he's embarrassed He's afraid. He's ashamed to come to Rome where all the really smart guys like Seneca are. Paul won't go there. He doesn't care about the church in Rome. And Paul sits in Corinth in a church that he did plant, and he says, no, 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 I want you to understand I am absolutely caring about you. It really matters to me who you are and what you're done. It's instructive for us. It helps to to confirm that there are some accusations that have been going on about Paul, and that helps us to understand the rest of what Paul is going to write. But I want, you to, I want you to think about this. Paul is sitting in Corinth, writing to a group of believers who were now in a church that was almost certainly started by a few Jewish people who happened to have been in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost. The Spirit of God falls. They're believers. They get it. They go back to Rome, and they plant these churches. But then Emperor Claudius kicks out all of the Jewish population of Rome. And so all you have left are these new fledgling Gentile believers. I want you to get this. These Jewish people go from Jerusalem back to Rome. And all they have is the scriptures. All they have is the spirit. And with that, they plant churches. And soon those who planted the churches have to go. And so there are people in Rome who are Gentiles, who are Christians, who have never seen Jesus, either in his earthly ministry or even in his resurrected body, who yet are believers on the testimony of somebody else. Does that sound like anybody you know? It's you! You are a believer, I hope, I trust, on the testimony of somebody else. Because you see, that's the ingredients of the church. The Spirit of God with the Word of God a church doth make. Not anything else, not any fancy light shows or limericks or anything else. The Spirit of God and the Word of God, a church doth make. And Paul sits there and goes, oh, you you have no idea how thankful I am that you even exist. You are a testimony to the goodness, the grace, the glory of God, and that he gets it done. I want you to understand how Paul must feel about this. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, and yet there's a Gentile church that is flourishing apart from him. 
See, the church is not dependent on any one of us, on anybody. God's going to get it done. We are invited in as a privilege to participate in what God is already doing in the world. We don't build his kingdom. He's doing that. We get to be a part of his church. This is very, very instructive. Paul says, I am so thankful for you. You don't understand. You are a proclamation of the goodness, the glory, the grace of our God. And then Paul says something very interesting. I thank God. He doesn't thank them. Like, I'm so thankful to you guys for being the sharpest people, the, the, the most clever that you figured all of this out and you decided to trust Christ. Now, there is a people in Rome who are pagans in the empire capital. And I thank God because God has done it. I challenged you last week, I will do so again, to loosen the hinges on your doctrinal defense gates. And I got your texts and emails, some of you who went, no, I will not budge on anything ever. Praise God, I think. I'm going to invite you again to set aside your tradition, your background, and your system and subordinate them to the text. I'm not saying that background, tradition, and system are unimportant. I'm not saying that. I'm saying they must always be subordinate to the truth and the teaching of the text. And if you are unwilling to do that, let me just tell you, Romans is going to be a very long series. Because, listen, I have a background. I have an education. I have, uh, I have a seminary trajectory. But all of that has to be subordinate to the text. What is the text saying? Paul says, I thank God. And I don't thank God for your faith. I thank God for you. I am thankful to God for you. It's people. Paul says, I am thankful for you. You are people that matter. And you didn't do a thing. Just like me, Paul says, I was running hard in the wrong direction, but I thought I was right. I thought I was right, but God turned me. And he indwelled me with his spirit. And he made me, one who was far from God, a child of God. And he has done the same thing for you. Now, if you're reading Romans waiting for them to demonstrate the choices that they have made, it's going to be a long 11 chapters until anybody makes a single choice. Just just telling you what the text reads. 11 chapters of doctrine of what God has done before we ever get chapter 12 to what we're supposed to do in response. So just, if if that's really upsetting and off-putting to you, I pray that God would speak to all of us by his spirit, to our people, through his word. Paul says, I am thankful for all of you, for you people. Now remember, this is Paul, a Jew of Jews and a Pharisee of Pharisees, he calls himself, who studied under the feet of Gamaliel. He was the rising star, the youngest member of the Sanhedrin. That's like the Jewish Senate. And now he's sitting in Corinth, you, 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 saying, I am thankful to God for you. Because you people in Rome, you are the the ones who are the manifestation, the reality of the promise that God made to Abraham 2,000 years before Paul, even. I am thankful to you. And listen to what Paul says. We've already sang about it this morning. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. You hear me, and I hear you. Paul confesses it is only through Jesus that God hears Paul, that he has access to speak to God. It is through Jesus. Jesus has done a thing. The gospel is a person, not a thing. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Why? Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, clearly, the people in Nicaragua, we're not talking about the Roman Christians 2,000 years ago. 
not what Paul means. The whole world is a reference to the church expanding throughout the Roman Empire. Their faith is being whispered about. It's being declared in all the other churches. There are people in Galatia, in Pisidian Antioch, in Macedonia, in Syrian Antioch going, can you believe it? Jesus said we would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, even to the end of the earth. And there are thriving churches in Rome. It's happening. And what were they talking about? Just this nebulous nothingness of faith? Just a, No, 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 no. Again, the purpose of the book of Romans in chapter 1, verse 5, that they would have obedience of faith, that they would believe, and that their conduct would stem out of their belief. It was happening even in Rome and the capital where Emperor Nero lived. It was incredible. Now, verse 9, Paul says, For God is my witness. He calls God to the witness stand. I want you to know, this is true. I swear to God, because only God knows the inner depths of Paul. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Paul never met a prepositional phrase he did not love. He's going to tie together like 19 of them, right? God is my witness. He knows that I'm not lying. This verse does not make sense unless we understand that someone has accused Paul of not caring about the church in Rome. Oh, he does deeply. In fact, so much so that he says something incredible. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. I am ministering on your behalf even though you don't see it or hear it or feel it or are aware of it. I love you and God is my witness. I swear to God that this is true, that without ceasing, I mention you. Paul says, part of my gospel ministry is to pray for you, to be interceding on your behalf. Even though I've never met you, even though I don't know anything really about you, even though I didn't start that church, part of my gospel ministry as a leader is to pray for you, for your well-being. And I will tell you that this was convicting, as I thought this week. Mm, how much time do I spend in concentrated, focused, deliberate prayer for the people of this campus and church? And the obvious answer is, I've never been focused a day in my life. So, not much. I realize that I would best categorize and classify my prayer time for this church as woefully efficient. It's brief and to the point. And I'm convicted over that. That Paul models part of our gospel ministry is to be persistently in prayer. But the nice thing is, Paul's not giving a model just for apostles or pastors. It's for all of us. So I wonder... How much time do you spend praying for the people in this room without ceasing making mention of everybody else in this room? Yeah, yours is probably just as woefully efficient as my prayer life is. And so that's convicting, but that's an important thing that we get to be a part of as the church. Paul says, always in my prayers, verse 10, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul's been asking for success in coming. He's been wanting. We're going to find out finally in chapter 15 that the one that has prevented Paul from going to Rome was God himself. Because God was going to do a thing and he didn't necessarily need Paul's help. And Paul will ultimately succeed in coming to Rome. He will do so in chains as a prisoner, having been shipwrecked, bitten, and snake bit. Success does not always mean it will be easy. Success means the thing happens that needs to have happened and it might be hard. And that ends up happening to Paul. But this is a really important time to pause and refer to a biblical principle of church. 
Our enemy loves nothing more than to take a slight bit of disinformation or misinformation or misunderstanding and sow all kinds of seeds of doubt and mistrust within a congregation. This is why we have all kinds of checks and balances with our finances, with our staff hirings and dealings, all kinds of opportunities that the slightest glancing blow gives way to to a festering distrust, mistrust. And Paul says, I'm going to take some time here to over-communicate, to over-coordinate, to be as crystal clear as I can with consistency that you know I am not avoiding you. I am not embarrassed. I am not ashamed. I want to come to you. God is my witness. He wants to obliterate any sort of shadowy mistrust whatsoever because so much is at stake. To just assume, ah, they'll figure it out. Ah, they trust me. They know me. Paul says, no, 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 no. So much is at stake in the church of Rome. So much is at stake in the church here and now. We want to over-communicate with clarity. Anytime there's any sort of crisis kind of a thing, we always want to speak with speed and transparency to not give way to any sort of whisper campaign. Because if the trust in the leadership of this church begins to falter, the whole church begins to implode. So some of you will say, yeah, you keep telling me that. You've already told me that. I go, thank you. Thank you. It means you're listening. Yes, yes. We always want to be as clear and consistent in communication as we possibly can. That's one of the reasons we send you 15 emails per day. Please read them. I would love to just come to your house, hang out, eat your Oreos, and tell you one-on-one. I don't have the time, and you would finally kick me out, and it would harm our relationship. So we try to communicate. Please understand that's what we're doing there. Now then, Paul moves on to verse 11. He's going to spend the next five verses explaining why he wants to be there. He's already told him the purpose is in verse 5, so that you will grow in obedience of faith. That's his overarching purpose, so that you will grow in obedience of faith. Verse 11. For I long to see you, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now, Paul's going to give three supporting statements. I want you to grow in obedience of faith, and I'm going to accomplish that in three different ways. Three supporting statements. Number one is that I can impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now, we don't know exactly what that is. Paul is intentionally vague and imprecise here. Is it the spiritual gifts of 1 Corinthians 12 and later Romans 12? Maybe. Probably not. More than likely what Paul is saying is, listen, you have no apostolic founding. That's fine. God is still doing a thing, but God has called me and gifted me uniquely. I want to come to you. I want to share with you. I want to give you what I have because that's what church is and does. People who are gifted by God's Spirit, building, bolstering, blessing, and edifying the rest of the people. That's what spiritual gifts are all about. I want to come and do that with you. I love you that much, and I don't even know you yet. And then Paul does something very interesting. It's the only time in all 13 epistles he sort of pulls back and corrects himself because he realizes that verse 11 came across a little bit strong, and so in verse 12 he clarifies. He says, that is, let me, let me explain, and he softens a little bit, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul says, I want to come and strengthen you. That's where we get the word for steroids. I want to come and sterizomai you. But then he realizes, oh, but, 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 but that... I'm no different or special than anybody else. You have something to give to me as well. I have no papal authority. I am an apostle, but you have faith. You have gifts to mutually encourage me. Your faith is not better than mine. My faith is not better than you. I'm not a professional. I just happen to have been called as an apostle. So this is very instructive. Church is where people with spiritual gifts bless and build one another. In other words, Church is uniquely that place 
where people who are indwelled by God's Spirit, who are gifted with a spiritual gift, edify the body of Christ. That does not happen in secular organizations or even parachurch ministries. That is uniquely a church dynamic. That's important for us to know, which reminds me and re-energizes the notion that the church is God's plan for your life. Now then, verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. I love the fact that Paul, Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, never having been there, calls them brothers, family. Sometimes siblings squabble, yes, but Paul thinks of them as family eternal. Now what we'll find out in chapter 16 is that there are actually some people in the church that he's biologically related to, but he's never been to Rome. He probably doesn't actually even know them. But he thinks of these people as brothers because, again, this is a group of people who were far from God, who God turned, who God bestowed blessing upon, indwelled them with his spirit, put the robe on them, put the ring on their finger, killed the fatted calf, raised them to nobility, and called them sons and daughters. Paul says, we are brothers, even though I've never been there. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you. I've wanted to come, but I have not been able to but thus far have been prevented. In order that, here's the second supporting statement. I want you to grow in obedience of faith. To do that, I'm going to share spiritual gifts and, verse 13, that I may reap some harvest among you. I know that other people have planted. Other people have watered, just as he describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But I want to be there to help you bring in additional converts, to help disciple those who are already in the church, to watch their spiritual pupils dilate. I want to be there with you so that your church in Rome, the church, continues to grow in obedience of faith, to reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. This is one of the ways we know that the church in Rome by this time was predominantly Gentile, probably started by Jews. They're kicked out. By the time Paul writes this, some of the Jews are coming back in, but Paul's saying, hey, I want to be a part of what's happening there, both with discipleship and evangelism, and that most of the church by this point is probably Gentile. Then verse 14, Paul says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. This is a strange sentence that seemingly kind of comes out of nowhere. And I wish the ESV would translate it differently. Paul says in the ESV, I'm under obligation. Bad translation. It is literally, I am a debtor. Ophelian, I am a debtor. Two, interesting, Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. What's going on here? Well, in the Roman Empire, the, the still common language was Greek. It was the language of the refined, of the educated, of those who were polished. And any other language, including Latin or Aramaic or Hebrew or the Germanic languages or, or whatever was coming out of the Gauls, was considered barbar, what it sounded like to those who spoke Greek. And so barbarian just meant someone whose language was not Greek. Paul says, I am a debtor to them. What does Paul mean when he says that? It's, it seems like... Greek and barbarian, wise and foolish, is just an amplifier of the first pairing. So it's not two separate pairs of populations. There's Greek and barbarian, you know, the wise and foolish. It's a cultural distinctive. It's how people in Rome thought of all of the Roman Empire. And so Paul says, I have a debt to them. How in the world did Paul get into debt to Greeks and barbarians? Now we have to be careful because our tendency, because we've sat in church before, is to go, well, you know, Paul, of course he's a debtor because, uh, you know, he's a bondservant, he's a slave, and Jesus is Lord, and Jesus said, go do a thing, and Paul said, yes, I guess I should because you're king, and okay, and I'm in debt to you, so I'll go do it. 
And that would be true, except that's not what this text says. Paul here does not say, I'm a debtor to Jesus. I'm a debtor to God. I'm a debtor to the Spirit. He doesn't say that. I'm a debtor to Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and the foolish. How did Paul get into debt with all of these people? He has an obligation to them. What is it? The best way I can describe the full force of what Paul is describing is with an illustration. Let's just imagine for a moment that the whole world has been exposed to, by some tragic accident, the whole world has been exposed to some airborne bacteria. Everyone's been exposed. All the world's population has been infected. We're all going to die. Now, I know that movie's been made about 37 times. Anytime we can't figure out another superhero movie to make, we make that movie outbreak or something i know but just just imagine with me go with it because this is a, a common theme everybody's been exposed to this bacteria everybody's infected everybody's going to die but somehow miraculously you are a recipient of the cure and the explanation of the cure you now have been given the cure you're well you're alive you're not going to die what do you do with that say it's going to be so cool to be the only person alive. No, you have a debt to the entire human race to share that information. That is the force with which Paul says, I am a debtor to Greeks, barbarians, foolish, and wise. I have been rescued. I was running hard in the wrong direction, but I've been given the cure of my own depravity and destruction. I am now in debt to the entire human race. We'll talk about Jews in another chapter. That's coming up. I have an obligation to all of them. That's how bad I want to come to Rome. I feel that burden of, no, 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 people are going to die. People are dying. I have to get there and give them the words of life. That's how bad he wants to get to Rome. Now, think about those two pairs, Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. That's really instructive. What Paul essentially is saying, this Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, he is saying there is nobody who is disqualified from hearing the gospel. Now, I know that all of us instinctively hear that and we go, yeah, well, of course. Oh, really? Who are those people that just make you so mad when you watch the news? You just, you just wish they weren't. Paul says, no, 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 no. Greek barbarian, foolish wise, there is nobody who is disqualified from hearing the great news of the gospel. Education, ethnicity, economics, worldview, sexual deviance, Voting record, residential address, nobody is disqualified from hearing the gospel because it is God's plan for everyone that they grow in obedience of faith. And Paul understands that because he recognizes that who he was was running hard in the wrong direction away from God and God turned him. And if we ever begin to feel like, think, or behave that there are some people who are beyond the hearing of the gospel, then what we're essentially broadcasting is we think we deserve it more than they do. We're just a little bit more righteous than they are. That they're less righteous than we are. And if that's our mindset, then we have misunderstood grace. We have overestimated our righteousness and we have diminished the scandal of grace that God plucked me out of my own depravity and rebellion and called me his son. Now that changes the way I interact with people all through my spheres of influence in life. Oh, that person, I disagree with them fundamentally about that. Good luck in the fires of hell. I would never say that out loud, but by my actions and by my aloof treatment of them, it's precisely how I treat them. 
It's a very convicting verse because that person is a person made in the image of God and the church is God's plan for that person's life. We know this to be true. He feels that strongly about it. Now what Paul is absolutely not saying is I am a debtor to God because of grace. God turned me, God did a thing, and so now I'm trying to pay him back. Perhaps you've seen the church marquee. Jesus died for you. The least you can do is live for him. And that is a great, grand heresy. You do not pay God back for grace because the instant you try to pay it back, it is no longer grace, it is a work. We get something and we do not deserve it, that's grace. Paul is not saying, I'm trying to pay God back here. If that's ever flooding into your mind, stop, start over, there's grace for that too. We do not ever attempt to pay God back for grace. If you believe that, that is to the peril of your soul. So Paul says that you would be established, that you would be strengthened in growing in obedience of faith. I want to impart a spiritual gift. I want to be there to help reap the harvest. And then in verse 15, we get the third supporting statement. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. That's weird. Preach the gospel. I thought the gospel was just something that you said to somebody to get them saved. Nope. Nope. The gospel is a person, not a thing. There is no context of your life in which the gospel is not immediately pertinent, ever. The gospel is not just to get people out of hell and into heaven. The gospel is the central truth of our lives. God has done a thing in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. And so, any time we sin, which in my case is a lot, any time we sin, it is essentially, foundationally, a failure to believe the gospel. God loves me. He sees me with the same affection and attention that he sees Jesus. But I don't buy it. I don't believe it. And so I feel like I've got to go grasp for some other sensation or pleasure or experience or image. Or my wife is not treating me the way I think I deserve to be treated. It's a failure to believe the gospel. That's just hypothetical, by the way. I don't like the way that guy just cut in front of me in traffic. Ultimately, that is a failure to believe the gospel because he has offended me. Because I don't believe that I'm enough. I don't believe that I have value and esteem. And so I have to try and get it for myself. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to pull up next to him and I'm going to look at him. That'll teach him. (laughs) Has it yet, but I'm going to keep doing it. Anytime I sin, ultimately, it is a failure to believe that the gospel is true in my life, in my marriage, in my parenting, in my friend relationships, in my extended family, in my business dealings, in my church. Now that's convicting. Because as a pastor, I look in the mirror and I go, oh my goodness, that's a failure to believe the gospel. As a pastor, I hear counseling situations and I go, oh my goodness, do you know that the gospel is true? How would you treat your husband differently if you actually believed that God loved you and that he's not God? Your husband's not God. He can't do that. It's a failure to believe the gospel. So Paul says, I can't wait to come to Rome and to bless you by charging you and challenging you to actually live the unleashed life as though you were loved. There's no context in which the gospel doesn't come to bear. You and I will never go nor grow beyond the gospel, ever, because it is a person. It's Jesus. I promise you, we sit down to coffee for 15 minutes, you and I can mutually identify about a hundred ways in which we are not living in the glory and the grace and the goodness of the gospel. And by the way, 
That's what we're supposed to do. That's church. See, the church is God's plan for your life. And I don't know any other setting or context in our world in which that happens. So let me just try to apply this as quickly as I can. The church is God's plan for your life. Paul says his purpose in Romans 1.5 is to bring about the obedience of faith in all of the people who are believers, to bring about the obedience of faith. Paul says, I'm going to do that three ways. I'm going to impart a spiritual gift. I'm going to help you reap the harvest, the produce, and I'm going to preach the gospel. So what do those three things look like in this church at this campus? Number one goes like this. Love the church. I love to go to church. I love to, I love to go to church. This little installation of the new covenant community of the Spirit the people of God, the body of Christ, all of these people who are running hard in the opposite direction of holiness and righteousness, who were convinced that they had just enough on their own, that they just needed a boost, and God said, oh, no, 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 you are totally wicked. Not on the South Boston way. You are an evil human being. And he turned us, and he indwelled us with his spirit, and he seated us with him in the heavenlies and calls us sons and daughters, and that is the thing that unites us. So when you look at the church, do you love the church? Listen, Paul was this gruff, calloused, beaten guy, but this guy loved the church. He wrote in Thessalonians that he loved the church in Thessalonica like a mother cares for her young, tenderly, compassionately, sacrificially. Do you think of the church that way? Or do you think, ah, it's this obligation, I gotta go and check a box. I invite you to rethink your thinking about what the church is all about. When we encourage someone, when we love someone, we can't help but want to share it with other people. And so, as you love the church, I encourage you to share your spiritual gift. Have I mentioned we have opportunities in groups, men's Bible studies, women's Bible studies, children's ministry, youth ministry, where you can use your gift to bless and build somebody else. Love your church. When you love something, you can't help but get involved with it and give yourself to it. Love your church. Second principle. Live the church. Listen, there was a whole lot of things that Paul could have gotten involved in. The Apostle Paul was a sharp guy. He was a great leader, tremendous administrator and organizer. He could have started up this uh, parachurch ministry for the ethical treatment of animals in the arena in the Colosseum. But the Colosseum didn't exist yet, and that would have been a waste of his time. So he didn't do that. He realized that the thing that mattered most was people's eternal souls and the glory of God. Paul understood that there were worse things than death and better things than human flourishing. So what is the thing that is really worth giving yourself to? That people, the people you know who are currently in the church or people who are far from God would be brought into an obedience of faith. And if we're going to throw our lives into something that matters and get to be a part of reaping a harvest, that second statement that Paul talks about, Once you begin to see someone get it and they step out of a culture of religious formulas and into an actual appreciation and love relationship with Jesus, you'll never settle for anything else again ever because someone will begin to love Jesus as much as you do and it's affirming and it's good and it's glorious and it is God's plan. So love the church. Live the church. Thirdly, look at the church. Have eyes to see. Look at the church. What if we began to view every encounter and relationship as an opportunity to preach the gospel? 
Those are those three statements. Share or impart a gift, reap the harvest, and preach the gospel. What if we were to trust that God's Spirit is going to prepare conversations in which we get to have some sort of communication of the confidence we have because of the grace of God in Christ? Look at those around you who might typically annoy you, and I'm sure there's a few, and realize that they too were once far from God, but the Spirit of God turned them and redeemed them and dressed them as royal family and even indwelled them eternally. These people who will be in your way trying to get to the elevator, well, guess what? Our elevator's broken. You can't take it anyway. So you can help each other down the stairs in full community, all right? They're not there to annoy you. These are brothers and sisters, and there will never come a time in all eternity when you will not know the people in this room. For billions and billions of eons, you will know the people in this room. And I know there are other people who are outside these walls who may not look like you or, or vote like you or think like you, but those people are evidence that God is good and that he is getting it done. When you drive by another church, do you think as competition or do you think, wow, I'm so encouraged. God's getting it done in a different way there. That's marvelous. And then there are those who are not in any church. Perhaps we as a campus, as a church, would begin to envision those with whom we work, that we live by, that we drive past, and we would begin to say, oh my God, that you would do for them what you have done for me. <laughs> I deserve it no more than they do. I deserve it no less than they do. They deserve it no less than I do. But oh my God, would you do for them what you have done for me? Would you bring about their obedience of faith? And would you give our church the grace to participate in it? See, if we just began to think that way of our community and context, I think by the time we finish this Roman series, Tyler would be a very different place, certainly the center of the city. You see, the church is God's plan for your life. We've said it a lot of times, but I want to say it again. Paul seemed to understand that despite all the issues and the errors that arose in the church, it is still God's plan for your life. And in this age, you simply do not get the groom without the bride. I hear people say all the time, I love me some Jesus, but I have no use for the church. I'm sorry. You, you can't say that to me. Eric, I like you, but I have no use for your wife. I'm going to throat punch you if you ever say that. <laughs> and by the way, Jesus feels even more strongly. You do not get the groom without the bride. Jesus loves the church so much that he willingly endured the cross, not to mention the fracture of fellowship that he'd had with the Godhead for all eternity just so a group of people who were far from him would be his, and so that Jesus could then present those people back to the Father. The church was worth the effort to Jesus. May she be worth it to us. The church is God's plan for your life. May we all grow in obedience of faith. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And we thank you for church for this new covenant community of your spirit. And Father, I do pray for those who are yours, that the gospel would sound forth, that because of the redeeming work, the finished work of your son Jesus, spouses would look at each other differently this afternoon and not go grasping for something else from their spouse, but realize that they have it already, that what they have in Christ is enough that they would treat their children and their parents differently, their co-workers, their friends differently, that they would treat the people in this church differently because the gospel has sounded forth and continues to reverberate in every heart and soul. Father, if there's someone out here this morning 
who does not know you, I do pray, God, that they would come into a saving knowledge of your son. If that's you this morning and you're here and you're not a believer, I challenge you to ask God if it's true that he wants to save you. And I challenge you to pray, oh God, if you're there, would you do for me what you have done for them? And I can promise you the answer is yes. May it be and may salvation come to this house. We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for being here. I want to invite you again to get a bulletin, see what all is going on, get engaged. Let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction, and then we will be dismissed. Colleen's here at the front. If you would like to pray about anything going on in your life, anything that you've heard this morning, I want to give a benediction from Romans chapter 1, verse 7. It goes like this. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God bless. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.